0: Amen. Well, good morning, Haines Creek. I hope you are doing well today. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, I'm just going to say a special welcome to you. We are so excited and thrilled that you're here worshiping with us, and I would love a chance to reach out and follow up. Thank you for your visits. You can do me a huge favor, let me know that you're here. You can do that a couple different ways. One is just text the word welcome to that number. So all you got to do is text welcome to that number, or if you prefer, uh, we have our welcome cards right out here at our table as you go back out in the hallway. Look to your right, there's welcome cards on that table. Just fill one of those cards out, leave it right there where you found it. And again, that gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. And uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and pull out your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to finish out Acts chapter 17 today. But before we get to that, I just want to give you a reminder. Tonight is our Haynes Creek Community Night, so hopefully uh, you have uh, prepared to to come hang out. If you signed up, thank you. If you didn't sign up but you want to come, don't worry about that. Just come, just show up. We're going to be hanging out from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Miracle Field Complex at City Pond Park. It's like five minutes down the road from here. Uh, We'd love for you to come join us, hang out, get some free food, and then let's all have a good time together. So again, we'll get started right around four o'clock today. Um, and again, we are going to pick up, like I said, in Acts 17. So where we left off last week, we saw, you know, let's go to our, our map that we've been looking at here. So this is Paul's second missionary journey that we're looking at uh, over the last few weeks. We, he made it all the way to Thessalonica and Berea in Acts chapter 17. So we saw that last week. Uh, we saw that the, the Jews in Thessalonica, they, they ran Paul out of town at Thessalonica. Uh, they they chased him down in Berea, and Paul gets brought from Berea all the way down to Athens, at the, uh, where we left off in Acts 17, verse 15. So that's a 200-mile that's a journey from Berea down to Athens. It would have taken him several days to get there. So when we pick up in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. So let's read, let's finish out Acts chapter 17. Starting in verse 16, it says this, "...while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols." So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown god. Therefore, which you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that, he might, that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you about this again. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others. With them, Okay, so in Athens, Paul is moved by the idol worship that he sees there, and he preaches the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and pretty much everybody that he can find. And eventually he finds himself before the leaders uh, in Athens at what is called the Areopagus. And in this passage, what we see here at the end of Acts chapter 17, what Paul gives us is what I believe a great example of what it looks like to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't believe in Jesus. So that's what I want us to focus on today with our time. What can we learn here from Paul about evangelism, about sharing the gospel? And we talk about that a lot, right? Like I talk about that a lot. It's all over the book of Acts, right? We talk about sharing the gospel a lot because what I believe, I believe that, that that is a command For all of us, if we are believers in Jesus, we've put our faith in Jesus, then we are all given the command from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Go and preach the good news about Jesus. Go everywhere to everybody and share the good news. This is a command for all of us. And again, we we see this all over the book of Acts. This is like the entire point of Acts, right? Before Jesus ascends, if we remember all the way back to chapter one, what does Jesus tell us to do? Go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, everywhere you go. Go and tell people about me. Go and tell people about the good news of Jesus. So I think when we, when we look at scripture, I think we would have to agree, yes, sharing the gospel is an important thing that Christians should do. But every research will tell you that we, just, we don't do that. We just don't. Every study that's been done in recent years tells us that evangelism is on a sharp decline. People are not sharing the gospel. There's even some people, a recent survey I saw said 47% of uh, Christians aged between you know, their late 20s to their early 40s would say that, that you shouldn't share the gospel. I'm like, I don't, that's it's not, it's not in here. So let's just be clear, that, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're to share the gospel. But again, we don't. And there's a whole host of reasons why we don't, right? Some of it's, some of it's fear. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I, you know, I need a plan. Like there's a bunch of reasons why we don't. So I want us to look at Paul's example here because I think what he shows us is a lot uh, to, to help us with our fear or lack of motivation or even some practical benefits like how do I get started? What do I say when I share the gospel? What does that even mean? What does that look like? I think Paul gives us a lot here to look at. So let's look at Paul's example and then see what we can apply to our lives today. So the first thing, if you're taking notes, our first point, when looking at Paul's example, we need to look at what Paul saw. What Paul saw, that's the first Point here, what Paul saw. Let's go back to verse 16. What did Paul see in Athens? Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. He saw that the city was full of idols. Now, by the time Paul arrives in Athens in the mid-first century here, Athens is, is diminished, to say the least, from its former glory. I mean, we're talking like in, in the three 400s BC. I mean, Athens was like, that was a big deal. That was the most prominent city in the known world at that time. So it's, it's diminished a little bit from that, but it's still extremely important. Like, this is still the great city of Athens, right? Like, this is by far the greatest city in Greece. By far the city that's responsible for, for spreading the Greek culture that was so prominent all over the known world at this time. I mean, the Romans, who was the ruling empire at this time, they loved the Greek culture. The common language of the day in the Roman Empire was not Latin, which they spoke in Rome. It was Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. And that's, that's largely because of the influence that Athens had on the world. Uh, There was, you know, beautiful art and architecture. I mean, people still travel today to go see the ruins in Athens of the, the Parthenon, the Acropolis, and all of these beautiful pieces of artwork in Athens. And it was still very much at this time seen as the intellectual capital of the world. I mean, you think about philosophy, all the heavy hitters did their work in Athens. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, I mean, all of these guys did their stuff in Athens. And even hundreds of years later, their influence still remains large even in Paul's day. But seeing that the greatness and knowing the history of, of what Athens was, when Paul gets to Athens, that's not what stood out, right? He wasn't blown away by the architecture and the structures. He wasn't amazed by the philosophical knowledge of the people in Athens. Like, that's not what stood out to him. When Paul got to Athens, it says that he saw it was full of idols. That's what stood out to Paul. And what's what's interesting here is Paul uses, uh, or Luke, who's writing, uses a word here to describe Athens that's only seen here in the Bible and in all of Greek literature at this time. It's a word that means basically completely covered or drowning in idols, like that's how bad the idol worship was in Athens. And, and history backs this up. There, there's a a Roman author at this time said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. And what history tells us is there was about ten thousand residents. In Athens, but there was also about thirty thousand structures, uh, pillars, whatever monuments built to worship other gods. That's a lot. That's a lot of idols. So when Paul says that, that they're they're covered in idols, like he's not lying. He's not just kidding around. He's not being facetious. No, it was literally drowning in idol worship. This place was was full of people living and dedicating their lives to false gods. So when Paul looked around at the great city of Athens, this is what he saw. He saw a culture in desperate need of Jesus. Now let's, uh, a second point, the second thing we learned from Paul is what Paul felt. So what what did Paul see? What Paul felt when he saw all this. So verse 16, let's go back to that again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, it says that he was deeply distressed when he saw the idols. So he sees a city drowning in idols and it says that he was deeply distressed. This is this, The Greek word that's used here is the Greek word proxuno. Proxuno. it's where we get our English word proxism. If you've heard of that term or or know what it means, it means to be provoked to a strong outburst of emotions. Like something happens, you see something, experience something, and there is just this outburst and overflow of emotions. Could be bad, could be good, just an outburst of emotions. So it could be that, that you're angry or you're really frustrated or you're really grieved and saddened over something. Now, what's interesting is when the, when the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, when it, when it got translated into the Greek language, the word that's used when we see in the Old Testament where God gets angry at the idol worship of Israelites, when, when, when the Israelites reject God and chase after these other false gods, when God gets angry at the Israelites for that, the word that's used is proxuno. It's proxuno. So when Paul looks out at the idol worship of Athens, he's provoked he's provoked he has this overflow of emotions his spirit was distressed he was angry he was grieved he was frustrated by what he saw primarily out of his love and respect for god right like he he has uh, strives to to make god's name great to lift high god it's all about his name his glory for him not to be displaced and put aside like he's being in athens and paul even We'll remark later in his sermon that Athens is very religious, very religious, but you're chasing after the wrong stuff. You're chasing after these false gods, and that causes something within Paul to scream, and this is not right. This is wrong. He's deeply distressed by it. He sees the sin and the need of Athens, and it just, it tears him up inside. He has this deep concern and remorse over the spiritual state of Athens. Like they they think they're religious, and Paul sees them and he's like, No, you're you're spiritually bankrupt. And you're chasing after things that are just empty and nothing. And it tears them up inside. And we've all felt that, right? We've all seen something, whether it's in our culture, on the news, maybe it's even at your job, with your workplace, and your family, whatever, something happens, and it's not right, and it's, it's just wrong, and something within us is just like, no, this, this, this can't be right. No, this is, this is bad. This is wrong. Something needs to change here. That's what Paul's feeling. When he looks out and sees the eye of worship, that's what he feels. What do we feel when we look at our culture? What do we feel when we look at our, our city, our state, our country, and where it's going? where it's heading, where, where it's been creeping towards, right? What do we feel when we look out at, at our world? What do we see? What do we feel? Paul was deeply distressed by what he saw. All right, so we, we learn what, what Paul saw, what Paul uh, what Paul felt, and the third thing, what Paul did, what Paul did. So Paul was, was frustrated. He was angry. He was grieved over the spiritual decay and rot of, of this great city of Athens, and, like, he could have stayed in his, in his feelings right there, right? Like, he could have just stayed in his emotions. He could have just had this outburst of frustration and just despair and just been like, ah, I could, I'm just going to be really mad and angry. And, like, he could have lashed out, right? Like, he could have just gone to the marketplace and just yelling at everybody, tearing down these idols, like, just destroying stuff and just making a mess, right? Like, he could have done that. He could have uh, seen the, the amount of the idols and just how far gone the city of Athens was, and he could have just been like, man, pfft. I, I, don't, I nothing I can do about this. Like, y'all are too far gone. This is too bad. Y'all are too steeped in sin. Nothing I can do about it. I'm just one guy. There's nothing I can do. Like, he could have just thrown his hands out of him and like, man, done with y'all. I'm out. He could have done that. And I think if he'd done that, we would have all been like, yeah, I get that. I get why he did that. But what did Paul do? He saw the idols. He was deeply distressed. What did he do? Look at verse 17. What did he do in verse 17? It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he felt deeply distressed. And what did he do with that feeling of emotion? He engaged. He engaged. He didn't step back. He didn't withdraw. He didn't throw his hands up. He didn't throw in the towel. He engaged. Let's put verse 17 back up there again. The word so right there could also be translated therefore. It's a meaning of action. Paul saw the spiritual state of Athens and he took action. He saw how far gone they were, he saw how steeped in sin they were. So, therefore, he reasoned, he preached. He went to everybody and everywhere and preached about Jesus, talked about Jesus. He went to the synagogue and reason. He preached there with the Jews and the Gentiles who were worshiping there. He went to the marketplace, which was like the central hub of the city. Like that's where business was done. That's where everybody was. Paul went to the marketplace and said that he was talking to everybody. Everybody he saw, everybody who was there, he was preaching the name of Jesus, He reasoned, he engaged, he didn't pull back, he didn't withdraw, he didn't lash out in anger at this sin-soaked culture. He engaged with the truth of Jesus. He engaged in conversation. With all the lost people around him, Paul saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to share the gospel with those in need. And man, he didn't shy away from anybody, right? Like, we're we're told here, let's keep going. So verse 17, he he reasons, and then verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so I just want to point out, because I think this is important for where Paul takes his sermon, he's engaging with the philosophical leaders in Athens. He's engaging with the prominent philosophical viewpoints at this time, right? Like he didn't shy away from anybody talking to anybody about Jesus. He's like, Oh, you, you're really smart. You know a bunch of stuff. Cool. Let me talk to you about Jesus, right? Like, I don't care what you say, but I don't care what you think. You need to hear about Jesus. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So he engaged with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the Epicureans believed uh, they, they had this, this deistic view of God, which means that they saw the gods as removed from their reality, that the, the, the gods were disinterested in what they had going on here on earth, right? Like the gods, they didn't care. They weren't interested. They were uninvolved in our lives. So because of that, man, don't care about what the gods say. Don't care about what any of that stuff is. Man, just live your life. There's nothing after this life anyways. like just live it to the max. Just enjoy life, have fun, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Like that was the Epicurean philosophy. And then the Stoics, they had a different view of the gods. They were what's referred to as pantheistic in their view of God, which means that they saw God in everything, so the Stoics believed that there was this divine essence all throughout creation, and it connected everybody and everything. So everything had God in it, all of creation, all people, everything that was on this earth, it was all connected to this godly, divine essence from the gods. So they were pantheistic in their view. And they saw that this was most seen, most valued in human reason. So that's what they pursued. That's what they saw the highest goal of man was to be educated and intelligent and, and, and develop Your reason, right? Like, that's what they chased after. And they also believed that that the gods weren't disinterested. They were very much involved and directed everything, and you didn't have any sort of say-so or belief or anything like that, so they just kind of lived with this fatalistic approach. Like, it is what it is. Nothing you can do about it. Just try to be as smart as you can with the life that you have, right? Like, that was the Stoics. So again, Paul didn't care who he was talking to, right? Like he's, he's like, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you believe, I don't care how smart you are, you need to hear about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And what did he tell these people? What does he say that he was preaching? He says, others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So when Paul engaged, when he talked with these people, when he was in the marketplace, when he was in the synagogue, everywhere he went in Athens, he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And how did they respond? They called him an ignorant show-off. How's that for ministry, right? An ignorant show-off. It's a word that literally means seed picker. That's how it's translated. Like the literal word is seed picker. It came to refer to people who plagiarized or kind of peddled other people's ideas like you weren't smart enough to come up with something original so you just steal from everybody else like that's basically what they were saying about Paul it was like it sounds ridiculous and like hey you're a seed picker I'd be like okay sounds good but it was a, it was a really big insult according to the Athenians to call somebody that like you're not smart enough to come up with something on your own you're just just spouting off whatever anybody else is saying so that's what they were uh, preaching. Uh, they, so they were telling about his preaching. They were just insulting it left and right. But eventually, Paul continues what he's doing. Like, he doesn't stop and gains the attention of the leaders of Athens and gets this invite to the Areopagus. The Areopagus. And that's a, that's a word that literally means hill of Ares, which was the Greek god of war. Some of your translations might have it as Mars Hill. Mars was the Roman version of the Greek god of war. So if you've seen Mars Hill, heard about Mars Hill, this is where it comes from. That's a literal translation of Areopagus. So he gets invited to that. So let's look at that moment. So we see what Paul saw. We see what Paul felt. We see what Paul did. He engaged in conversation. What did Paul say? What did Paul say? That's our fourth point. What did Paul say? So he's brought before the Areopagus, right? He's he's brought up to Mars Hill. And this is where the, the leading council of Athens met. Like these were the leaders of this city, and as Luke tells us, like they love nothing more than just talking about ideas, right? Like that's just what they did all day long—was just talking about stuff, uh, which is kind of funny to think about. Like they're calling Paul the seed picker, and really they're the seed pickers. Um, so Luke is kind of taking a shot at the people of Athens, which I love. It's it's funny, but anyways, let's move on. Let's look at his sermon. So uh, let, let's start out. Let's let's see what he said because I think this gives us uh, a good example to follow when we share the gospel with people. So uh, it starts out in verse twenty two says. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So he starts out building a bridge with the people of Athens, right? Like he's like, I see that you guys are religious. You're chasing after the spiritual, you're worshiping all of these false gods. Like, you've got so many gods that you just don't want to make sure that you miss any. So, you've got this altar that's inscribed to an unknown God. It's like, hey, there's a lot of gods. There's a bunch that we're worshiping. Surely there's more. So, we don't want to miss out on those people. We don't want to not worship those gods. So let's build an altar to the unknown God. I'm sure there's ones that we don't know about. Like, that's he's saying, you're so religious. You're worshiping gods that you don't even know about. But what Paul is going to make the point is like, you're, that worship, that's, that, that thirst for the spiritual, it's being directed in all the wrong places. All these, these, these gods that you're worshiping, they're false. They're not real. There's one true God, and that's who we should worship. So that's what Paul's sermon is going to be about. So he builds a bridge from, from their context, from the things that they were living for, they were pursuing, they were striving after. He builds a bridge from that point to talk about Jesus, to talk about the gospel, to talk about who God is is so let's look at the five basic points of his sermon the first thing he says is that god is creator verse 24 the god who made the world and everything in it he is lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands so his first point is that god is creator starts out with with god is the creator of everything there's there's one god and he created everything that we see and he created every single one of us he is creator of all And I think this is important, and and I love that, that Paul does this. I love that he starts his gospel presentation with creation. He starts his gospel presentation in Genesis 1. And I think so often we start in Genesis 3. We start with the fall. We start with sin. The gospel doesn't start with sin. It starts with God as creator. He has created Every single one of us, every single person, he's created us, and what that means is that he has a design and a purpose for our lives, and he wants us to live according to that purpose and design. He wants to live, for us to live according to the way that he has created us. It starts with creation. So Paul makes a point that God is creator. The next point is God is sustainer. God is the sustainer, verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. So God is the sustainer of all creation. Not only did he create it, he actually sustains it. He gives life to everyone and everything. What, what Paul's making the point here is that God, God does not depend on us. Athenians, the gods that you worship, like, you, you think that they depend on you for something, for your worship, for your praise, for your sacrifice. No, that's not how it works. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't depend on us for anything. He gives us everything. We depend on him. So not only did God create, God also sustains and gives life and meaning and purpose and value to everything. So God is creator, God is sustainer. Paul's third point is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verses 26 and 27 says this. For one man, From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So not only does God create, not only does God sustain, but God is sovereign and in control and directing everything that happens in his creation. So Paul's directly addressing what the Epicureans would believe. Like you believe that the gods are far off and distant and uninvolved. That's not true. The one God who creates and sustains everything is deeply involved in our lives. He's not far off and distant and uninterested. He's close, he's near, and he very much cares about you. And he's directing everything Kings, kingdoms, empires, nations. He's directing all that. He's directing the the most important parts of creation or what we would say are the most important parts to to the smallest parts. He's directing everything about us, right? He says that, that he's determining the times and the places that we live. God determines that. He is deeply involved in our lives. He's present, he's active, he's near. That's who God is. His fourth point here, is God is Father. So God is creator, God is sustainer, God is sovereign, God is Father. And this is where he, he addresses the stoic belief that this divine essence is, is in all of us, that we're all connected together. So verse 28, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art imagination. So Paul starts out in verse 28 by quoting from two Greek prophets. That first one where he says, in him we live and move and have our being, he's kind of roughly quoting the Greek poet Epimenides. And then the second quote directly comes from the Greek poet eratus So he's quoting from the prophets of the day, and what these, pro- these, these poets would say when Paul says that, that, for we are also his offspring, the the author of that would say that, yeah, we're Zeus's offspring, right? Like, that's who we come from. We come from Zeus. That, that, that's who we're offspring. And Paul's like, no, you've got that right. We're the offspring of God, but it's not Zeus. It's the one true God. It's the one true God. So the point Paul is making is if that's true, if we are God's offspring, which you guys believe, you're just directing it to the wrong God, So let me redirect that truth to the right God. If if that's true, if we all come from God, that that, that means that we derive our being and our nature from him, and we depend on him. So what Paul's saying there is is if that's true, if we come from God, if we're his offspring, it's crazy to think that we can somehow turn God or the essence of God into some idol that we've created. So I mean, if we're God's offspring, if we derive our being from him, then we can't possibly create God's being in a structure, in an idol that's made out of our imagination, that comes from materials that we have, that we create and fashion with our hands. But see, that that's what idol worship does, is it brings God down to our level. When we, when we worship a false view of God, what we've done is we've created God in our own image. We've tried to bring God below us. That's what happens in idol worship. And Paul's like, you guys, don't, you guys are doing this, and you would say that we don't actually agree with that. Like, it's, it's just silly. It's ridiculous, is, is the point that Paul's making here. So if we're our, his offspring, if he is our father, we, we can't possibly bring God down to our level. And we try to do that all the time. My two older kids, uh, so Zayden and Livy are my two oldest, and, and Zayden's almost seven, and Livy's Six, when they, when they talk about being an adult, the, the terms that they use are like, when I, get, when I grow up, they say, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm a mom or a dad, like that's what they say. So when they're like, when I'm a mom or a dad, they're, both of them all the time are like, I'm gonna be your mom and dad. And I'm like, no, that's, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. But that's what they think. Like, they think when they become an adult, like we are, that, that they'll be the mom and dad and we'll somehow become the kids. Like, I don't know, maybe when I get really old in life, like that will happen, but that's gonna be a long time, all right? We're a long way from that or at least I hope you are, <laughs> hopefully, right, so they think that the, the, they'll somehow kind of be over us at that point, like, they'll be the mom and dad, they'll be, like, really what they're saying is, like, we want to be in charge, we want to tell you what to do instead of you telling us what to do, and I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works, I will always be your dad, I'll always be your dad, you'll always be my kids, I don't care how old all of us get, that truth will never change, Your mom will always be your mom, right? What they're doing is they're trying to to put themselves above us. And that sounds silly to us, right? Like your kids putting themselves above you, like that doesn't make sense. And yet we do this all the time when we worship idols, when we chase after the idols of our day. We're taking God or who we should be worshiping, what we should be worshiping, and we bring it down and fashion it in our own image. We bring it down to our level, we bring it below us, and we try to make God, we try to become God's father and him, our offspring, right? But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And Paul is pointing out just how ridiculous this all is. Like when we talk about it in those terms, we're all like, yeah, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense. That's not possible. And yet we do it all the time, just like the Athenians. That's what idol worship is. It's crafting a God in our own image to chase after and worship and love more than the one true God. So God is Father. The last point Paul makes is God is judge. Look at verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So because God is creator, because he's sustainer, because he is sovereign and he's our Father and we're his offspring. We are his creation. That gives God every right to judge his creation according to his standards. And Paul says, that's going to happen. God is judge and he will judge us. And he judges through the one man, through Jesus. So what's our response to this? What's our response to the truth that Paul has told the Athenians? What he calls them to do is repent. Repent, right? We talk about repentance a lot in church. It means to change. So Paul says, hey, leave your sinful ways behind. Stop turning towards sin and turn to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Stop worshiping these fake versions of God. Repent and turn to the one true God. Repent, turn to Jesus. And Paul says that that Jesus has the right to save us, to rescue us, to judge us because of the resurrection, right? That that is the central point of the gospel. How is Jesus able to save? How is he able able to heal and forgive and redeem and set us free? All those things, it's because he is raised from the dead. He died, he was buried, but he rose again. It's all about the resurrection. That confirms everything. Why can we believe everything that's in here? It's because Jesus is alive. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. It's all about the resurrection. And look, Paul says this knowing that everybody who's about to hear that would think the resurrection is ridiculous. Being raised again to physical form, like why would we do that? Why would God do that? That's silly. Paul knows that people aren't going to like that. But it's the truth of the gospel. And Paul preaches that truth anyways. And that's exactly what happens, right? He says, once he did that, they start to mock him. His sermon at the Areopagus, it, it ends at that point, and Paul walks away. All right, so what can we learn from Paul's example here, right? We, we see what he saw, what he felt, what he did, what he said. How can we bring that here to our lives in 2022? So for the remaining time that we have, five quick things about what this means for us. So what does this mean for us? Five things. First one, what can we learn from Paul and apply to our lives? We need a burden for the lost. We need to have a burden for the lost. All throughout scripture, we see God's heart for those that are far from him. We see God's heart for lost people. I mean, we see this in the ministry of Jesus where we're told throughout the gospels that when Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, his heart is filled with compassion. Even in Luke 19, it says that when he looks out, Jesus weeps over the sin of the city. Jesus has a heart for lost. Uh, We see this clearly in Luke 15 where Jesus gives us three parables all about how much he pursues those that are lost. It starts out in verse 1 of Luke 15. It says this, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching and listening to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them and does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And that's God's heart for the lost. He forsakes the 99 to chase after the one. That's Jesus' heart. And he calls us to have the same heart as him. Y'all, we need to have a burden for the lost. We need to look out at our culture, at our city, those around us in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our family, those people that we know, that we're connected to, that don't know Jesus, and our heart needs to break inside of us, knowing that, man, if they were to die today, they would spend eternity in hell, forever separated from God. That should tear us up inside, just like it did, Paul. We should be deeply distressed that people around us don't know about Jesus. That should tear us up inside. We need a burden for the lost. I mean, how do we develop that? We do what Jesus did. Luke 15 starts out with people making fun of Jesus because he spent time with sinners. How do we develop a heart? We get to know people that don't know Jesus. Build relationships with people that don't know Jesus. Who in your life doesn't know Jesus? Who in your life are you actively building a relationship with that doesn't know Jesus? Do you care that they don't know Jesus? And not just what are the answers to those questions or what do we think we should say to answer those questions, what do our actions demonstrate? What what does our lifestyle right here, right now, say the answers to these questions are? Do we care? Are we building relationships? What does our lifestyle say? We need a burden for the lost. Second thing we learned from Paul is we need a willingness to engage, a willingness to engage. So do you care enough, do we care enough that people are dying and going to hell to not just build a relationship with them, not just care for them, not just love them, not just maybe try to meet some tangible needs, but do we care enough to engage in conversation with them? Do we care enough to talk to them about Jesus? Are we willing to be like Paul and go out everywhere to everybody who doesn't know Jesus and talk to them about Jesus, to share the good news of Jesus with them? Look, I'm telling you, these are the two biggest pieces of evangelism. Like, these are the two most important pieces of sharing your faith. Then you can have all the training. I could give you all the books to read. We could have all the classes you can imagine about how to share the gospel. You could have, feel confident that you've got all the answers to any questions somebody would ask. But if we don't care, if we're not willing to talk, it does not matter. I'm telling y'all, God can do a lot with people who have a heart for the loss and a willingness to talk about Jesus with them. Man, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it with people around me, how much we can fumble through sharing the gospel, how we can say it in a way that we look back and we're like, man, that did not make any sense whatsoever. I was rambling. I didn't know what I was saying. And still, God uses that to save people. Man, God can do a lot with a heart for the lost and a willingness to talk about Jesus. Do we have a heart for the lost? Do we have a burden? Are we willing to to engage. Look, I'll give you this. Are we willing to do the bare minimum of just inviting them to church? Y'all, you bring them here, I'll tell them the gospel, all right? I promise you that. I will do that for you. I got you. All right, can we just, can we just do that? Are we willing to engage? All right, number three. Number three. Third thing we learned from Paul is, is we need to build bridges to the gospel. We need to build bridges to the gospel, so when, when we talk about Jesus, when we're trying to share the gospel with who we're trying to talk about Jesus, we need to look for opportunities to build bridges from where they are to Jesus, right? Like we need to, to look for ways that we can turn a, a normal conversation into a gospel conversation. Like that's, that's the goal. So what did Paul do? Man, Paul learned about the culture. He knew the Greek poets. And we see him quoting throughout his writing the Greek poets. Like he knew and understood the culture that he was in. Do we know and understand the culture that we're in? Do we know where people are hurting, where there's brokenness, where there's uh, where, where there's this, this false worship that the yeah, people in Athens were, were chasing after? And again, this this goes back to relationships. I mean, how do we know what people are striving after? How do we know where they're hurting? How do we know where they're broken? How do we know where they're in need of Jesus? We get to know them. We ask those questions. We learn about their life. We learn about what's going on. And man, when there's an opportunity. When something gets said, we're like, oh, man, I can connect that to Jesus. Boom, we take advantage of it. We jump in there. We we build a bridge from where they are to Jesus. We look for, like I said, just just opportunities in regular conversation to talk about Jesus. And look, how that happens, how that happens is, man, we got to have a heart so devoted to Jesus that Jesus just spills out of us when we're talking to people. Like just talking, we could be talking about some random thing, but man, somehow, some way, it's going to come back to Jesus because that's who I care and love about most. That's who I want to talk about most. That's how I live my life. It's just Jesus just, just, just comes out of me, right? Like, I just can't help it. I can just, just can't help talking about Jesus. I think a lot of you guys know this. I, I love basketball. It's the Lord's favorite sport. I can back that up with scripture if you want. But um, I'm just kidding. Um, I love basketball. I especially love the NBA. I love watching the NBA. I love reading about the NBA. And there's a, an author, a basketball author, that I found a few years ago. His name was uh, Jonathan Charks. Jonathan Charks is brilliant. Uh, young guy, uh, really smart, really saw the game in a unique way. So I started reading everything I could by him once I found him. And, and I learned pretty quickly, man, this guy, he's a, he's a strong believer. Like, he is a strong Christian. Like, he's working for all these different secular companies, writing about the NBA, basketball, a game. But, man, you can tell. And he was very upfront about it, man, where he stood with Jesus. His faith in Jesus was a big deal to him. And so a few years ago, he got brought on to this well-known secular big sports media company that that I follow as well. And and it was cool that he got that opportunity gave him a much larger platform than he ever had. But then a couple years ago, Jonathan Charks got diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. Rare form of cancer, and and there was no, I mean, there was barely, you know, just uh, trying to just keep him alive for as long as they could. And eventually, last month, he passed away, left behind a wife and a a two-year-old son. And mean, I I listened to, again, this company that he worked for. They did a podcast about his life, and it was three guys that are very much non-Christians. Like, you listen to anything they say and write. It's very clear that these guys do not love Jesus. But for 45 minutes on a national podcast, they talked about Jonathan's life. And because of how much he talked about Jesus, they couldn't not talk about his faith. So for 45 minutes on a national podcast, these guys are talking about how everything this guy did was deeply connected to his faith in Jesus. Who he was as a person, how he wrote, how he treated other people was all based on who he saw Jesus as. These guys are talking about how, man, we'd be talking about some random thing and all of a sudden Jonathan would bring it back to faith. They'd bring it back to Jesus. And some of them were like, yeah, he even directly proselytized me a few times and almost got me, right? Like, it almost got me. Like, that's just how this guy lived his life. You know, if we passed away today, What would the the non-believers in our lives say was important to us? Would they say, you know, Travis, he was a good guy. He was nice. I think he went to church. Not really sure. Never really talked about his faith that much. Would they say, man, yeah, Travis was was a good dude, and he was was a nice guy. He, He treated everybody well, and it was all because of Jesus. He talked about Jesus all the time. Like, it was annoying. I don't know why he kept doing it. It was driving me crazy, but he wouldn't stop and he, i knew that he cared deeply about me and it was all because of jesus look for ways to bring jesus into our everyday conversations all right fourth thing when we talk about jesus when we build these bridges what do we do we share the gospel we share the gospel. This is the fourth thing we learned from Paul. We share the gospel. So if you get to the point of talking about Jesus, make sure you say and share the gospel. And look, we can talk about Jesus in a bunch of different ways. We can, we can kind of share the gospel in kind of a, a roundabout way. But when we get the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, when we get the opportunity to talk about our faith and why we do the things that we do, why we believe the things that we believe, take advantage and talk about Jesus. Share the gospel, the full gospel. And if you're looking for a way to do that, what I think is a very helpful practical tool is what's called the three circles method. This is the three circles method. It was developed by a pastor in Florida named Jimmy Scroggins. Here's his book all about it. It's called Sharing or Trying uh, Sorry, Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations. So let me. I'm going to give you this overview because I think it's a really helpful tool. But it's all over the internet. It's all over. I can send you this picture as well. If you want to take a picture of it, that's great. If you want to take notes, that's great. But I can send it to you. Or you can buy this book. If you want to see this book, I got it right here. You can check it out afterwards. But this is, I think, a really helpful and easy tool to share the gospel. So the three circles method starts with this. It starts with God's design. It starts with creation, just like we saw what God did. Or just like we saw what Paul did, right? He starts with creation. It starts with God's design. God has created us, and he's designed us to live according to his ways, according to his design. Yet, We, as people, reject God's design all the time through a variety of different sin, right? That's where sin comes in. We reject God's design, we chase after our own, and eventually where sin leads is brokenness. And we all know what brokenness feels like. Brokenness feels like loneliness, emptiness, regret, shame, frustration for where we are in life, a desire for more, unsatisfaction, unfulfillment in life. That's brokenness. Now, the good thing about brokenness is it tells us that, that something needs to change. None of us like feeling broken. So we know something needs to change. Something needs to happen. But what we do is we try to find and fix our brokenness in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes it's maybe a new relationship. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's living in a different place, doing something differently, chasing after something else, constantly looking for more or better in our life. We try to fix our brokenness on our own. And that never works out. That only leads to more brokenness. The only way to fix our brokenness is with the gospel. It's with the gospel. And what's God's word for change? It's repent. You want to fix the brokenness in your life? You want to stop this circle of sin? There's only one way out, and that's the gospel. That's through Jesus Christ. So we're called to repent, which means change. Again, we talked about that. We turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus. We repent, and we believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is that God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to die on a cross for our sins, to be buried for three days, and on the third day, rise from the grave. That's the gospel. And when we believe in that, when we put our faith and our trust in that, God forgives us and he allows us to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. That's the gospel in a few minutes, right? Like, we can easily share that. This is, again, this is a helpful tool. There's lots of tools out there. I think this is a really helpful way because, again, it starts with creation. points out our brokenness, our need for change, and that the only way to change is through Jesus Christ. So, again, if you want more help with that, if you want more resources, just look up Three Circles Method, Evangelism, Jimmy Scroggins, his book, whatever. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, all right, so share the gospel, and the last thing we learned from Paul is trust God with the results. So when we share, when we invite, we trust God with the results. Look at what happened when Paul shared the gospel in Athens. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you about this again. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So when Paul shared the gospel, there's three things that happened, three different ways that people responded some mocked and rejected him. Some were, you know, somewhat a little bit interested, maybe wanted to hear some more. And some believed. Uh, Jimmy Scroggins talks about in, in his book here that, that when you share the gospel, those are three things that you can expect. And he calls it uh, a red light, yellow light, and a green light. Some people are going to give you a red light. They're going to flat out reject. Come to church with you? No, that's ridiculous. Hear about Jesus? No thanks, I'm good. You Get a red light. Sometimes you get a yellow light. So I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll come check that out. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, can we talk about this another time? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little, maybe we can keep talking about this. You get a yellow light. And sometimes, man, praise the Lord, you get a green light. You're like, yes, I want to put my faith in Jesus. That is awesome, right? Like, that, that's, the, that's, that's why we do it, is to get the green light. But those results are not up to us. They're up to God. Our job is to share. Our job is to preach the good news. Our job is to talk about Jesus, and then we trust the results to him. Our job is to share. God's job is to save. So you can relieve yourself of that pressure. All right, it's not up to you to save people, thankfully, right, because we'd be all really bad at that. That's God's job. But what he calls all of us to do is share. Share the good news. Throw out those seeds and see what happens, right? I don't know what's gonna happen to those three guys that Jonathan Chark shared the gospel with and the many others that he did. I don't know. Maybe they'll believe maybe not but made a seed was planted sometimes the lord takes that seed and he waters it and he brings fruit he brings growth brings change and repentance and salvation that's why we do this church our job is to share god's job is to save so look god has given us an opportunity we have an opportunity before us just like paul did When Paul looked out, he saw a culture drowning in sin. When we look at our world, our culture today, we see a culture drowning in sin. And we can lash out in anger. We can throw our hands up and say we're too far gone. Or we can see an opportunity to bring the gospel, the hope, and the light of Jesus to the dark places around us. That's what Paul did. And my hope and my prayer for each one of us is that we would be like Paul, that we would have a heart and a burden for the lost. That we would be willing to engage, that we would be willing to build bridges to the gospel, to talk to people about Jesus, to share, to invite. I pray that we would do that. And then, y'all, I'm telling you, if we do, if we do, man, I'm excited to see God work in that. Because again, our job is to share, God's job is to save. Let's do our part, and then watch God work let's see what he does let's step out in faith let's put fear beside right let's let's cast that out step into this and engage people in conversations about jesus build relationships with people that don't know talk to people about jesus let's be like paul i pray that we would be that kind of church let me pray for us and we're gonna step into a time of worship and communion. So this is a time like we do every Sunday for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. It's time for us to, to spend some time in focused prayer, maybe in repentance, right? Like maybe we have been indifferent towards the lost. Maybe we, we have been unwilling to engage for whatever reason and we need to repent, right? We need to, we need to change and step back into God's mission. Maybe you need to spend some time just praying for those in your life that don't know Jesus, right? Pray for the opportunities to come. Pray for God to change their hearts. Maybe you have shared the truth. You have shared the gospel. You have invited them to come, and there's been nothing yet. Maybe you just need to pray and give that to the Lord and be encouraged and be filled with a new sense of, of action and, and direction and urgency to keep going, to keep fighting. Spend some time in prayer. Prepare your Hearts. And as you are ready, those of you that believe in Jesus, we go to the tables over here on the sides. We take the cup and the bread. We, we eat, and we drink, and we celebrate, and we worship the God who gave his life for ours, who sacrificed his body and blood on the cross for our sins. And we come, and we, we worship our God and our Savior. If you're here, and you don't know Jesus, but you're feeling the weight of that brokenness, and, and you want to learn more, you want to talk more, you want to put your faith in him, I'll be Hanging out in the back, I'd love to talk with you today. Or if you're here and you need prayer of any kind, I'll be hanging back there. I'd love to to pray over you today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives, Lord. God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you loved us so much that you left heaven to come down and save sinners like us. Jesus, I thank you for that, Lord. Let even just us remembering what you've done for us spur us on to share the good news with others to see what you can do in their lives. Just give us a heart for the lost, give us burden, give us a motivation from you to go and engage and share the gospel, Lord. And as we go, as we talk, would you use our bumbling efforts and our, our words that might not make sense, Lord? Would you use that? to bring salvation to people, Lord. Would you use us in whatever way you see fit, Jesus? Let us be obedient to your call, to your mission, Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done, Lord. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray.